spent last time on the qualifications for elder. So just read this text and we'll get into it. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right, so he continues. Um, He sort of... uh, He began the letter with urging Timothy to stay on at Ephesus and deal with these false teachings, gives them some preliminary things to think about. Then he addresses um, practices in worship. We talked about prayer, the place of women and men, some of their natural proclivities, men towards anger, women towards wanting to be ostentatious in their uh, adorning themselves. Um, Paul warns against those kinds of behavior because they distract from our common worship. And then he launches into a section on the qualifications of elders and deacons. Now, what do you notice that's what sticks out to you when he moves from elders to talk about deacons? What do you notice there? Exactly. They seem much like the same qualifications. They're very elder-like qualifications. And what does that suggest? Yeah, it suggests that no matter what the position is, it, it has to be rooted in the character of the person. That character is where he's going to operate out of. And if he doesn't, if his character is not Christ-formed, then he's not going to be, one, qualified for the office of a deacon, but two, he would make shipwreck of the office were he in there, right? And this is, the, this is what leads us to so much of the problems that we have in the church, right, is that we don't pay heed to these qualifications because we come up with our own, right? We have, like, wow, this guy is an excellent administrator in business. He must be qualified to be an elder. And that's because we sort of map onto the church business-like ways of doing things. We want, okay, we want the same success that we might have in business, so let's apply those same principles to the church. And uh, But what happens is usually disastrous. And the same qualifications for somebody to be a great business leader are not necessarily the same qualifications to lead the church. Um, And so Paul is outlining these things, really drilling down to the character, because that's what's important. And we don't see a great deal of difference between the elders and the deacons. There are some, and we'll draw those out as we look at them. But but what's really important is that they are both well-formed people in, um, in their character. So uh, he begins, likewise, deacons, and that's 
um, saying like, in the same manner as elders, deacons should be like this. Respectable, dignified. I actually really like the NIV. Does anybody have the NIV open? Can you read that? Just the verse 8. Yeah, so they dignified, uh, he needs to be respectable, right? This is kind of that above reproach that we talked about elders. This is a sum all, right? If you are a respectable person, then probably you're not going to be, you're going to be sincere. You're not going to be double-tongued. You're not going to be addicted to much wine. So it's, it's sort of a summary statement like, um, like the elders one, above reproach. So... Uh, Sincere, the Greek is double-tongued, which the ESV follows, which is good, or devious in speech. What do you think he's referring to there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and that's, what, let's just think in terms of the office of a deacon. Why would that be important before we kind of extrapolate out to all of us? Why is it important for what the deacon says to be truthful? Yeah. Yeah, and he can't be the kind of person who, to one person, says one thing and then goes and does and says another thing to somebody else, right? He's got to be consistent across the board in his conversations, in his dealing with other people. He can't be two different people. Um, I, I forget if it was, uh, I forget where the, the phrase comes from, but you, you want he, you want the kind of character where you could give your parrot to the town gossip, right? And you wouldn't have any problems because what you have said in private is what you say in public. They're not two different things, right? So you're quite comfortable with what's being, what's you have expressed in private being public because there's not a, there's not a disparity between those two. You're not going to be shown to be dishonest or double-tongued or devious in speech because what you've said in private is the same. Or what you've said to one person, you're not worried about it getting to another. And this should be a good measure for us, right? Uh, We don't really need to worry about gossip because the things that we're saying are consistent with our Christian character. And so they're not going to come back and bite us because they're truthful, they're... You know, they're dealing in, in, uh, in things that won't lead to us not being sincere. So this is important not just for deacons, but for all of us. We have to be cultivating these kinds of um, <clears throat> tendencies. Not addicted to much wine. We looked at that with the elders. Um, now, it's important for us to recognize that the office of a deacon, let's, let's turn to... Uh, Acts chapter 6, and we'll sort of look at how this 
formed, and that'll kind of be the background for our discussion on this. So it begins in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they said, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Those they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All right, so what's, what, what's happening? What's going on in this description? Church is growing. Yep. Yeah. So a couple important things that we want to key in on. There is a complaint, a certain group of people. Who are these people? Okay, they're Hellenists, and particularly widows. Not, yeah, they're widows, Hellenist widows, and the Hebrews are neglecting to care for these widows. Now, that's going to become important when we look at verse 11 and the controversy that surrounds whether or not the office of deacon is for males only, or, or if it's for women, too. So we'll, we, we need to keep this in mind, that the problem that arose in the early church involved the distribution of the needs for the widows, right? These are um, people, women, who cannot, either they don't have families that are caring for them, or they cannot care for themselves, and so they rely upon the support of the church, And so the disciples are taking up all their time serving tables, is is what it says. So literally caring, feeding them. And they're finding that we can't really do the job that God called us to do as witnesses, um, laboring in the ministry of the word, if we spend so much time doing this. So we need to elect men who can take care of this problem for us. And so they pick seven men. Um, It's interesting. Most of these names are very Hellenistic Greek names. So they picked those they felt would not fall into the problem of neglecting this group of people. They set them. They they had to be men who are full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Um, And so they chose these seven men and they set them um, over the ministry of service, of what's called the diaconate, from the word diakonos, which just means service. 
or servant. Um, and so uh, this word is used all throughout the New Testament, not as a specific office, but just as I'm a servant, you're a servant, Jesus is a servant to the Jews, Paul's a servant to the Gentiles. It, it doesn't always mean office, a particular set aside for this function. It doesn't always mean that. And there, are a lot, there is a lot of debate as to whether this is the early church setting aside a particular office for the service of caring for the needs of the congregation. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that that's what's going on. Whether or not they use the word deacon or not, what's happening is what's later um, defined as what a diaconate does. So uh, we, don't need to, we don't need to really doubt that that's what's taking place. Interestingly, in the early church, they thought you could have no more than seven deacons. So uh, every city, with, as the church grew, they only allowed seven deacons to be ordained. And so they ended up getting these elaborate uh, under deacons and archdeacons. And then the office got really changed uh, by the third, second and third uh, centuries. It was, uh, became more like something of a junior elder, somebody who was in training to be an elder or a bishop. And uh, I don't think that's really what the New Testament was driving towards, um, but that's just, I guess the easiest way to say it is that bureaucracies tend to corrupt, uh, right? You, you, you multiply all these structures out uh, to, and they start helpfully, but they end up getting, they end up getting off base, um, usually. Not always the case, but um, Philippians 1, 1. Paul says, uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, that is the episkopos, the bishops, and deacons. So he's writing to the church in Philippi to all the saints and to the bishops and to the deacons. So we see two offices um, enumerated. Um, and so, and then, of course, in our text, he gives qualifications for both of these offices. So, um, the background is important for us when we talk about their character. Now, why would it be important if we're thinking about a deacon and his service to the church that he not be addicted to wine or not greedy for dishonest gain? Why would those be important? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Bill. Yeah. 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 So it could it could lead you to be not sober-minded, what the qualifications for an elder, so that you're not making good decisions. But also imagine if they have, uh, you know, like they've got the grocery store, and part of that includes wine because this is what everybody's drinking every day. The water is not clean for you to drink, so you have to drink 
you know, things that have been fermented so you don't die. And so they're, they've got access to things. They've got access to the money. They've got access to food, possibly drink. So they we have to be careful. Uh, they have to be circumspect kind of people to be able to handle that kind of um, responsibility, just giving out the, the stores. So... Um, they can't be greedy for dishonest gain, and I'm going to talk about this in the sermon today, but Judas is, a, is an example of this, right? He gets frustrated when Mary breaks the expensive ointment on Jesus' feet, and he says, why wasn't that sold? We could have given this money to the poor, but John tells us he doesn't care about the poor, right? He was helping himself to the money bag, so he's thinking that there's a lot that could have been in my money bag that's not there because she did this service. So it's important that their character be good because they're going to be managing the funds of the church. They're going to be caring for, they're going to be responsible for the stewardship of the property, the finances, all of those things of the church. And so it's important for us to, uh, it's important for their character. They have to be trustworthy. He continues in verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The mystery of the faith, what's he referring to there? That's a mystery. What is the mystery of the faith? Why does Paul use that language of mystery? Well, let's back up. What do you think of when you think of mystery? Something hidden, but you can figure it out, right? I mean, this is like Sherlock Holmes. You just need to do logic, reason. You deduce, you know, by certain things that are natural that you can figure out. And you can find out what's, what's, what's the mystery. You can unravel it, right? That's what I think of when I think of mystery. But that's not what Paul thinks of when he thinks of mystery. He doesn't think of Sherlock Holmes. He thinks of Daniel chapter 7 and t- Daniel chapter 2. He thinks of the mystery as something that's hidden to us, but God reveals. The Trinity is a mystery, right? God reveals himself to us as one God in three persons. Uh, How many people understand that completely? Right? It's a mystery. It's something we confess. Um, The mystery of the faith or let's say the mystery of Christ, what is that referring to then? What is the revelation of Jesus Christ? If somebody says that, what does that mean to you? Okay, the Word of God, Scripture, Old Testament all the way through. And what is that revealing? Salvation, Salvation. yes. From the very beginning to the very end, And why is that? So the mystery is, how did you, we, okay, we got into this predicament. How do we get out of it? That's the mystery of salvation. How are my sins going to be forgiven? How can I move from an enemy of God to his friend where he doesn't, he's not wrathful towards me? That's the mystery that's revealed That's the mystery of Christ, right? That's the mystery of the faith. 
Deacons have to understand that. Why do they need to understand the gospel? Exactly. Elaborate on that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter, yeah. Right, right. This is why Jesus is constantly encouraging us not to be anxious about those kinds of things, right? Because it's, it's not like they're not important. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given us a deacon to care about those kinds of things. They, they do matter, right? Our, our bodily health, our situations in life, all of those things feed in to our faith and how we view the world, how we relate to it. So it's not as if those things don't matter. We're not disembodied ghosts, you know, that just kind of, well, it doesn't matter what I do in my body. I'm just concerned with the spiritual. That's Gnosticism, right? We're not Gnostics. We believe in the body. We are embodied souls. So what happens to your body is important, but it's not the most important, right? We have to have categories for how to deal with those kinds of things. But so uh, a deacon needs to hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Why do you think he adds a clear conscience? He needs to know the gospel and his conscience needs to be clear. Why are those connected? He's not in sin. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, is your conscience always a good guide? Conscious helps, but can your conscience be sinful? Yes. This is called the noetic effect of sin, right? Our, we are totally depraved, radically depraved. That means, you know, from the Latin radix means all the way down to the root. It doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be. It just means that every aspect of your life is corrupted by sin. And that means your conscience is corrupt as well. So, through repeated sins, they become something like it's not very bad, right? It's not a problem. You sear your conscience so that uh, you can engage in sin and not have it bother you, you know? Um, That's great. I'm glad you brought that out. Yeah. Worm theology, right? Woe is me, and you can never get your eyes off of your nasal because you've been navel-gazing navel, navel so long that all you look at is yourself and your own sins, your own introspection never leads you to look to Christ. You never look to the one who, the mystery of faith that took away your sin. So yeah, Glenn's right. We can err on either side. We can either sear our conscience so that we're, we're able to, uh, we're habituated to sin so it doesn't bother us. It's just part of our our habits, or we are so fixated on our sin that we miss the mystery of the faith. And either one is not having a clear conscience. But I want to drive down to the, the what, what Susan was talking about, how important it is, because when, we, when a deacon is ministering to the bodily needs of the congregation, they have to understand the gospel to be able to apply any kind of remedy anyway. Otherwise, you're putting a Band-Aid on something and you're not actually stopping the flow of blood. 
right? You're not helping the situation. Uh, you might even be making it worse um, by leading them to, to uh, attribute the helping hands of Christ with the gospel. But they're not the same, right? Um, they, they go in tandem, and God uses them, but he uses them so that sinners are drawn to him. And so deacons have to understand the gospel with a clear conscience. They have to know my sins are forgiven so that I, if I go to Steve's house and he has a need, I can tell him his sins are forgiven too as I'm helping feed him or clothe him or take care of whatever needs he's dealing with. Uh, and you, if you don't have a clear conscience, you can't tell somebody else, Christ has forgiven your sins. I know that because he forgave mine, and I am the chief of sinners. So this gospel mystery that they must hold is absolutely essential to their calling as deacons. Then in verse 10, he continues, And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Well, that's interesting. He doesn't say that about elders. Why is he, why is he um, adding that in as, as far as deacons go? Why might that be important? Period of testing, a trial. Now think in terms of verse 8 and 9. Yeah. Yeah, just giving somebody the office and not having the qualifications beforehand does not confer upon them the character needed to execute that office, right? Uh, in fact, it'll usually bring out the opposite because you now have the stress of a new job and that's going to bring out who you really are, your true character. So, first, before you become a deacon, you should be tested. Your character should be tested so that what comes out is, he, yeah, he, this man is dignified. He isn't, what's that? What does the testing look like? Probably um, the way I would interpret it is being an assistant to a deacon, right? Uh, having some responsibility of starting to execute the office without the authority to do it on your own. Um, but the Christian life is a trial, right? Where we are tested and our character shines forth. So um, Paul may have something in mind, like he said to the um, elders, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So it may be that Paul's just saying, look, we need to know that these it can't just be somebody who just came into the church and now we give him, you know, the keys to the stewardship of all the property and care for all the members. It's got to be somebody who's familiar, his character has been tested and tried, and he's been shown to be blameless in all of these things. So um, probably a good way to do that is to make him an assistant so he can learn and walk alongside a more mature deacon who's already whose character has already been proved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, so it's their character is proven by those who are outside in the, in the same way that deacons will be proven by their character within the church. How are they acting? How are they stewards? And I remember when I uh, w- became a deacon, it was a two-year trial for me. And I had to go through officer training, which meant I had to do the first part, which was understand the mystery of the faith, which meant a pretty intensive study of the Westminster standards with an elder, uh, one-on-one, kind of a mentorship thing. So making sure I understand the gospel and have a clear conscience. And then two was uh, being an assistant to a deacon who had been one for a long time. And I went with him. We cared for the poor. We set up ministries. He gave me tasks to do. And he watched me. And then he counseled me and said, hey, you responded this way. That is not being sincere. You know, that is not being respectable. You know, in the different ways that he could evaluate my character and see, you know, you need to be growing in this area. And those were helpful. And, um, you know, so I think something along that lines would be a trial. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 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 This is why um, within Presbyterianism, uh, the elders are the ones that should put forward candidates that have been nominated by the congregation, but who have passed the period of testing. And I would do the exact same thing for elders. So. If your session is saying these are godly men who we think worthy of these offices, you can trust that. Does that make sense? So that's the checks and balance that we would have. Otherwise, yeah, it would be a popularity. This guy's popular or, you know, maybe he's a good tither. And that could influence the elders too, right? Elders are not unbiased. We have to be cautious and use objective standards as well. Um but, yeah, I think a period of testing and, um, and the session putting forward the candidates that have been nominated. You might nominate seven guys for the office, and only three of them are put forward. For various reasons that will come out during training, they're not fit for that office, then you wouldn't have them go forward. Does that make sense? Okay, now we get to the thorny stuff. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Um, There's a lot of debate in the PCA right now over women in ministry. Um, For some reason, we like to shake things up and find things that were very simple, extremely difficult to understand, but... um, This is not a new phenomenon. It's happened throughout history. But in our current moment, we are wrestling with, you know, issues of gender, relationships between the gender, sexuality. These things are hot-button issues that are divisive. They're very divisive. Um, Women in ministry is one of those issues. Now, in, um, in Romans 16, verse 1, we have this statement of Paul. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, 
a servant, a deacon, a deacon of the church at uh, Sincrea. So what do we make of that? Okay, that's interesting. So we have Paul commending this woman who most commentators believe is carrying the letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome, from this church in Centria where Paul is a prisoner. So he's writing to the church in Rome, and he sends Phoebe to deliver this message, and he calls her a deacon. Then we come to this section in Paul's letter to Timothy, and he says, women, likewise. It doesn't say wives per se, and I'll get to why there, there could be ambiguity, and it doesn't say there. The ESV and most translations add that, and I think it's right that they do. But we need to, we need to wrestle with the text and to answer the question, not our own presuppositions, right? Um, so it says, women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And the, the word um, for women in Greek is the same as the word for wife. They're no different. It's, it depends on the context, how you translate it. So most feminists and modern-day uh, commentators, some mo- modern-day commentators want to say, this is a change because it's the same language as before where it says deacons likewise. Now it says women likewise. So their thinking is that this must be talking about women deacons likewise. This should be their behavior because it doesn't necessarily mean wives. But the context is always king. How do we determine what Paul is talking about? Well, we know from the context. If we read down again in verse 12, then he goes, let deacons each be the husband of one woman, managing their children and their own households well. Well, woman doesn't really fit there, right? It has to be translated wife. You're not going to be, it's not, when you're using the term husband with women together, it's husband and wife. Um, And so, it, would, it wouldn't really make sense for Paul to be talking about deacons and then all of a sudden be talking about a whole other class of deaconesses and then return to talk about male deacons and their relationship with their wives. That doesn't, that wouldn't, nobody would jump logically like that. So what is, what is Paul talking about? Why does he single out deacons' wives, but he doesn't single out elders' wives? Why does he put some qualifications on deacon's wife, but we have nothing in the qualifications for elders' wives? Good question. (laughs) Sure. It's implied, sure. Yeah, I think you can do that, but it's all centered around the man's leadership. And his ability, right? His qualifications determine, are determined by the way he manages his own household. So it needs to be dignified, respectable. His family needs to be in submission. Um, but it doesn't really talk about his, the qualifications of his wife. And part of that relates to the office, okay? So deacons uh, are s- serving and this is where it's really important to remember the context of the original 
deacons? What is the problem that arose? Taking care of widows. And at that time, they called seven women to help do that, right? Because we have women that need cared for. So they get seven godly women and put them over the care of the widows, right? No, that's not what happens. So if it's the case that they are advocating for deaconesses, why wouldn't they, in this particular situation where they need to care for women, why wouldn't they have elected deaconesses? And I think the best way to describe this is that deacons need their wives to minister alongside of them, right? That's why Paul is concerned about their qualifications. Because when he's going to enter into a household, there's probably going to be women there that might need care as well. And a woman will understand those needs and be able to assist her husband in the care of the bodily mercy needs of the congregation. I think that's the best way to take this text. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. It's the same thing, respectable. They can't be slanderers because they're going to they're gonna know things about people in the church. They cannot be double-tongued just like the deacon, he can't, he's got to be sincere. So would their wives have to be sincere. They can't be, they have to be sober-minded. It's the same thing. They can't be addicted to much wine. They need to be faithful in all things. So it's the same qualifications. Um, their wives who would assist them in this task need to be qualified to do that as well. So when we go to examine deacons, I think this needs to be done with elders too, right? Because we're, if we're trying to discern Does he manage his household well? How do you do that without talking to the wife and the children? Of course you will. Um, You know, those things are going to be on display. In the same way for a deacon, you're going to find out, is this man capable of serving in this office? And is is his wife able as well? So she should be um, just as much as a part of the conversation, even though she's not being ordained to an office, but she's certainly assisting him as one flesh. Um, so this doesn't, like elders, it doesn't mean that deacons have to be married or have a wife, but if they do, their wife ought to fit this kind of qualification. You know? Very good. Yep. Yeah, almost all cultures have had that as a problem. Maybe in our culture, those barriers are being torn down, but unhelpfully, right? And they've led to lots of problems. This is why, you know, Mike Pence with the Billy Graham rule get, got so much flack, uh, because people hate that kind of talk. And it, and, it, and it can go wrong, right? When men start to think women are evil and are always going to lead me into sin, then it leads them to put the problem out on somebody else. But lust is bound up in the heart of the man. He needs to repent of that. Um, but, but it is unhelpful to put yourself as a man in situations that give the appearance of evil. right? They give the appearance that something untoward could have happened. You don't want to be in that situation as a man. So uh, having a wife assist you is helpful in those things. And, um, you know, you could, there's ways, there's other ways that you can minister to men or, you know, uh, going together or doing it in public. There's, there's other ways you can do it without having a woman, but uh, a, the, 
a session and their elders should be working with the godly women in the church to assist them in their task of the mercy ministry. One of the reasons is because women know what's going on, right? Us men, we walk through life sort of oblivious, like a lot of things are not, like I'm not aware of what sometimes what's happening, even my own home. But my wife gives me a daily briefing. This is what happened, you know? And a lot of times I don't listen as well as I should in those daily briefings. But the, the women have an ear to the ground. And so we need godly women to assist us in caring for the needs of our congregation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, what's the, uh, teach a man to fish, I forget the, you guys know that expression, but you know, you can give a, you can give a man fish, or you can teach him how to do it, uh, there's some great resources, you know, helping without hurting, things like that, that help you kind of evaluate situations, instead of just rushing in with money, or, you know, some something else, you want to you want to be wise in your stewardship of the resources of the church and always be uh, enabling them to make better decisions. You know, as a deacon, one of the biggest things I had to deal with was young men and being stupid with money because they don't know how to budget. They don't know. They didn't get taught those things. So we, you know, I can't pay my cell phone bill, you know, and they come in and they're all distraught and we got to walk alongside them and we say, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to help you, but now you're committed to doing financial training with us and your books are going to be open to us and we're going to see what you're spending your money on and we're going to help you get to a wiser position so that you don't need the church to pay your cell phone bill, right? So that's what a deacon should be doing, right? And then we should remember that the work is not solely done by the deacons, but they are marshalling together the church to do the work of the ministry. Just like I'm not the only one who encourages people in here in the word. You all should be encouraging each other in the gospel, right? I'm equipping you to do that kind of ministry. That's my role. But my role is not to be in everybody's house all the time, living life with them, but you guys are all living life together. You should all be encouraging each other in the faith, walking alongside one another. So deacons in the same way, they're not going to meet every mercy ministry need, but they're going to use their gifts to bring the body of Christ together so that we can help each other. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. That's a great plan for any ministry, right? Is to, this is what my, my father does. He works at a social, uh, uh, a social, uh, what do you call it? It's a place for homeless people, but it's for homeless couples that have children only. And they register, they give them food and they give them a place to live, but they also give them the gospel, marriage counseling, family counseling, help their help them raise their children and 
get them plugged into godly churches and those kinds of things. And so our ministries ought to be able to um, enable people to get the help they need to grow and mature and not just Band-Aid fixes, you know. Here's a check. Here's a check. You know, usually they don't have the wisdom to use the finances, so they end up getting into the same problems they were in before. Which is why it has to be coupled with the gospel, because you can't have reformation without hearts that are changed. If you don't have people transformed by the gospel, no amount of food or clothing or anything is going to help them make better decisions in life. They're they're always going to dig a pole and fall into it. That's just the nature of um, people walking apart from Christ. Okay, then he continues in verse 12, let deacons each... Yeah. Yeah. Well, remember how I said in the beginning that deacon is not always referring to an office. Because Jesus is called a deacon, Paul's a deacon, but he's an apostle. They have different callings. So my own take is that Phoebe is somebody who's commended by the church. She's probably a benefactor. Many of the ministries of the church went ahead through the faithful benefaction of women in the Greco-Roman world. If a woman had four kids... She can conduct business on her own in the Roman Empire. And if something happens to her husband, she's a widow, whatever, life expectancy is not long, but especially with men who are in battle, doing all kinds of other things. So widow is, there's lots of widows in the ancient world, more than there is um, widowers, right? So um, probably Phoebe is uh, a wealthy benefactress who has been a blessing to Paul, probably supported him. Remember, when, uh, when Paul's in prison, it's not like the Romans are giving him three squares and a college education and stuff. They're like, hey, if you don't get somebody to feed you, you will die from starvation. We don't care. So somebody is coming and feeding Paul every day. And probably it's these wealthy benefactors, not always a woman, but many times it was. And then Jesus's entourage is filled with these kind of women who are patrons, right? They're they are assisting him by paying for his ministry. And this is not unheard of in the ancient world. So. I also was curious. I, I've heard, I even, even when I joined the PCA back in the early 90s, they were talking about women being deacons. Mm-hmm. When you read this, this paragraph of you know, verses 8 through 14, it's, it's blatantly obvious that it's not talking about women deacons. Right. right. Well, it's because you try to take the things that you find in Scripture and reconcile them with your culture instead of having your culture be reconciled by Scripture, right? So you go the other way and then you impose on the text and you say, well, we know that women and men are equal. There's no difference between them, right? This is our, the common assumption is that there is no difference between a man and a woman. They're interchangeable now. I can be a woman if I want. That's how I self-identify, then I'm a woman, right? Uh, Bruce Jenner is woman of the year, you know? 
And uh, the hardest thing for him was choosing what to wear. Is that the case, women? Is that the hardest thing about being a woman? No, of course not. How demeaning for him to even suggest something like that. But that's how deluded our culture is, right? And so it doesn't, it's not surprising that we read, that feminists might read this who say, we don't need men. Men are not essential. They've, they're denying the fatherhood of God, which is very plain. You know, so it's not hard for us to see that they would come to this and say, well, it could be either. It doesn't matter, you know. So um, willful blindness, yeah, but it's more like darkening of their minds, God giving them over to something that is debased, right? There are many people who teach the Bible in secular universities who hate God. And, uh, and so they're bent on twisting the scriptures. And Paul's easy to twist because he's got a lot of hard things to say. But you remember um, just a few verses e- earlier, he says that... Uh, um, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. He just finished saying that. And um, then he gives these qualifications. And uh, there are some debate. The biggest debate around deaconesses is that they think, well, the office of a deacon is not authoritative. And so the current debates are saying we shouldn't even ordain these people to be deacons. Just make them deacons, deaconesses. They function as sort of um, assistance to the elders, helping them with the mercy ministry. We don't even need to make it ordained. If we take away ordination, then it's not authority. No authority is conferred, and they don't have authority. Um, and, and I think that's really does damage to the text. I think it's a bad way to look at this issue. I think a better way is to say we need to have ordained deacons, and we need to select assistants that are not ordained, not installed, it's not an office, but they're godly people that can assist the deacons in carrying out their task, and those can be women. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Culturally relevant, you know, remove some of the hard things in Scripture, make it softer, and make it more palatable to people so they're not offended. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tim Keller's doing it. I mean, let's let's follow him. So, and he's a big, he's very big name in the PCA, very well known, and he, in my opinion, has erred and has led the church in wrong areas. Okay, deacons each to be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So similar qualifications as the elders, and for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the flesh that is in, in the faith. No, sorry, not in the flesh. Great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, wow, Paul's teaching works righteousness again. If you want a good standing, you've got to be a good deacon, right? Is that what he's saying? He's teaching works righteousness, right? You gotta have, if you want a good standing for them for yourself, you gotta have, you gotta be a good deacon. What's he talking about then? Yeah, yeah. Demonstrating that he has faith in Christ Jesus, and he holds it with good confidence. 
Um, that's what qualifies him. That's what enables him to be a good deacon. How does he minister and care for the needs of people if you don't have faith in Christ and you're not resting in him for your salvation? You're going you're gonna to rapidly run out of fuel. You know, your goodwill will burn out after about three cases of somebody whose life's been wrecked by sin. You need something that's going to sustain you in the trenches, in and out of difficult situations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. And I think that themselves would probably point to a subjective experience. They would have uh, a deacon who serves well, would gain a good standing for themselves. And I think probably, um, actually, I think it would be a both and. Um, because their good standing is so that they um, are recognized by the church as being a good deacon. This is somebody who cares for us who comes alongside and meets our needs. So they have a reputation in that sense. But I think also, um, uh, because he says, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, I think it's also internal. Like that they, they not only have a good reputation, but that they are resting and trusting in the mystery of the faith, which he's, he's going to lay out in the next few verses. He's going to enumerate what is that good confidence in the faith look like. But we don't have time to get to that today. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Did we fix all the thorny issues? All right. Let's pray. And we'll get ready for worship. Father, we're grateful for this word. We're thankful for the deacons you've called uh, to serve us. And we pray that you would equip and enable them to do so well that they may have that good confidence, not only amongst us, but amongst uh, in their own uh, subjective experience of their confidence in you. We pray that you would bless us as we think about uh, electing and, and installing future deacons, and that you would give us wisdom and insight as we test and as we look about us for those who are qualified, who may be able to come alongside the, the elders and meet the bodily needs of this church. We pray that you would continue to give us wisdom in this direction. Father, we ask that you prepare our hearts and minds for worship, that we would come into your house with great joy and thanksgiving as we lift up our voice in praise to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.